listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of First to Shoot, a song by Megan Wren. Raised in Cincinnati, now in Athens, Ohio, Megan is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about her, how to find her music, and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, it's been 30 years since someone took the life of 14-year-old Angela Hicks. 30 years since her friends and family have dared hope that her killer would be brought to justice. But modern DNA technology is changing the game, and something extraordinary happened last year that has given new hope to those who have never forgotten Angie and her fun-loving goofball personality. Let me tell you about it. In 1990, Angela Hicks was a cheerleader at Westwood Middle School in Elyria. A few years earlier, she was collecting Barbie dolls and playing games with her best friend, Nikki Smith. Now that she was older, overnights with Nikki were spent talking about boys, doing hair and makeup, sneaking a smoke or a wine cooler, and watching movies. Angie loved the movie Dirty Dancing. And at any age, she was also the girl who liked to crack jokes and act silly. Angie had been born to a teenage mom. In 1990, she was living in an Elyria apartment with her 29-year-old mother, Nancy, and her mother's new 21-year-old husband, Samuel Legg III. Angie didn't get along with her stepdad, who was only seven years her senior. The previous 11 months of marriage had been rocky ones for the two. Before Sam turned 21, Angela would tease him that he couldn't even buy beer. And when Sam tried to order her around, she would point out, you're not even old enough to be my dad. Angie suspected Sam of even killing her shih tzu pup. In July of 1990, Sam Legg lost his job at a driving school, and the school called to demand the return of tools, or they'd be calling the police. Nancy Legg, Angie, and Angie's friend Nikki ran the tools back to the school. The next day, July 21, Nancy went to her job at a nursing home, leaving Angie and Sam home alone. Angie was supposed to go to her BFFs, so the pair of them could attend a graduation party down the road, but she didn't show up. Nikki Smith assumed she'd probably gotten into a fight with her stepdad and was grounded. That evening, Nancy returned home from work to find that Angie was gone. There was indeed a fight, Sam Lake told his wife. He and Angie had argued, and Angie left the apartment angry. Nancy called Nikki to see if Angie had gone there. She hadn't. Nancy called police. After learning about the contentious relationship between Angie and Sam, police were certain Angie had run away. A week after she was reported missing, police told reporters they were confident she was safe and living somewhere with friends. Truth be told, Nancy thought her daughter might have run away as well. But Nikki said no way. Angie would never disappear without telling her. 
Besides, Nikki even recalled a random conversation where Angie had told her, if I ever run away, you'd better come with me. At Nancy's request, Nikki sorted through the things in Angie's room to see if anything was missing. You know, the two girls spent a lot of time in there. Nikki would notice something amiss as easily as anyone. All of Angie's clothes seemed to be there. Her shoes were there. Would she run away without taking some clothes or wearing her shoes? Nikki didn't think so. But there was something missing. Angie kept her Barbie dolls in a large army duffel bag in her closet. Two days earlier, Nikki had seen it there, stretched out on the closet shelf. The duffel bag was gone. After a few days, Nancy started agreeing with Nikki. Angie's absence had gone on too long. Her daughter wasn't a runaway. Something was wrong. But it would take a full five weeks to convince police of it, and only then did they agree because that's when her remains were discovered. On August 30, Mormon missionaries spotted her remains in a thicket near a ramshackle barn off West River Road, south of Midway Mall. A shirt and underwear were found nearby. Even then, it took two weeks to identify the body as Angie. Investigators tried arguing it couldn't be her. The body was part skeleton, part mummified. The state of decomposition too advanced for a death had happened the previous month. But famous Kent State University anthropologist C. Owen Lovejoy examined the remains and determined the girl was a teenager of American Indian ancestry. Angela was part Cherokee. Angie's dental records were then found and ended any question. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, but ruled it a presumed homicide. After all, young girls don't crawl under brush, remove their clothes, and lay down to die. But the biggest clue was the tiniest. Under Angie's body was a small plastic object. It turned out to be the horse stirrup from a Barbie doll horse, a horse that Angie owned and had kept in her duffel bag. It seemed very likely now that whatever happened, Angie had been transported from her apartment in that duffel bag. Police cast their suspicions at Samuel Lake III, but they just couldn't put together enough evidence to warrant an arrest. He was repeatedly questioned and reportedly took at least one lie detector test. The police have never revealed the results. Nancy and Samuel Lake divorced. Months passed, years slipped by, and Angie's murder was relegated to the cold case closet. Now fast forward to 2018. Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigation was trying to find the name of a serial killer who stalked prostitutes back in the 1980s and 90s. According to some, the killer went by the CB-handled Dr. No. He raped and beat his victims to death, leaving their bodies along Ohio's interstate. For years, nobody connected the string of deaths to each other until a 1990s Columbus Dispatch report laid it all out. Authorities, now aware of the pattern, put together a 13-agency interstate homicide task force. The BCI had DNA to work with, but the DNA didn't match anyone in the national database, 
which means whoever the killer was, he hadn't been picked up for anything that would require a DNA donation. But these days, a new technique using familial DNA gets around that problem. Forensic investigators can take suspect DNA from a crime scene and run it through a database of people who voluntarily submit their DNA, mostly for genealogy purposes. In the case of the truck stop killer, the BCI did this, and they got a hit on some of the cases from the 1990s. They found someone whose DNA indicated he was a close male relative of the truck stop killer that they were looking for. They applied some routine genealogy efforts to build a family tree, and circumstances pointed toward one man who was worth a closer look. Authorities traveled to Chandler, Arizona, where the man was living. They had a warrant for his DNA and took a direct swab. It matched. In February of 2019, officials in Medina County, Ohio, held a press conference. The man had been flown back to Medina to be arraigned on a 1997 rape. In that case, a 17-year-old girl hitchhiked from her home in Lexington, Kentucky, to her boyfriend's house in Cleveland. On the return trip, she accepted a ride from a long-haul truck driver in Medina at a gas station at the U.S. Route 224 truck stop right off I-71. The truck driver assaulted her. She survived the encounter, and a rape kit was completed at Mansfield Hospital. It was turned over to the Medina County Sheriff's Office for investigation, where the case promptly fell into oblivion. But the Medina rape case was a strong one against the Arizona man and served as a means to hold him while investigators put together the bigger picture. Their belief that that man was responsible for at least some of the murders attributed to the elusive Dr. No. Now, the capture of an alleged serial killer is news in any corner of the country, and this one was repeated on nightly broadcasts all over. In Florida, it was heard by the mother of Angie's best friend, Nikki Smith, who is now Nikki Myers, a wife and a mother. The mother called Nikki. Back in Ohio, Nikki picked up the phone and heard her mother's joyous cry, Honey, they got him! She shouted, They got him! because the man they had picked up in Arizona was none other than Angie's stepfather, Samuel Lake III. Oh. At the time of the 1997 rape, Lake was living in Northeast Ohio and working as an independent truck driver, working for a company in Hinkley. After police arraigned Lake on the rape charge, it was Mahoning County's turn. They charged him in the 1992 death of a woman whose body was found at an Austintown truck stop. In that case, the woman's identity wasn't known for 23 years. When the woman's daughter submitted DNA from her long-missing mother to a national database, the DNA matched the Austintown case, and Jane Doe turned out to be Sharon Lynn Kidzerski a 43-year-old sex worker. Police have yet to reveal the names of the other three victims that Samuel Legge III has been connected to. They aren't expected to be Angie. 
But Illyria police reopened their own investigation in hopes of trying to tie him to Angie's death. We were brought into this group collectively that's investigating Sam Legg, and some information has surfaced that we feel is important enough to reopen our investigation, Captain Chris Costantino told reporters. Detectives are working on it as we speak. Retired Elyria Police Captain William Cameron told the Madonna Gazette he always felt like was responsible for Angie's death, though he couldn't prove it. He wouldn't confess, the retired captain said, but he was the last person to see her, and they had a fight, apparently. He and Angela didn't get along too well. It remains to be seen if Samuel Legg will ever get indicted in the death of his stepdaughter, but it seems unlikely he'll see another day of freedom. I could have made this episode about Samuel Legg. We have named other episodes after killers, telling their stories and reciting their victims, but I wanted to name this episode after Angela to keep the focus on her. She never did anything to put herself at risk. She was a young and promising girl with a life that was ended brutally and way too soon. There's at least one person who has been trying to keep Angie's memory alive for years. Nikki Myers, her childhood friend, she was in that Medina County courtroom when Samuel Legg was arraigned, and she administers a Facebook page that updates people about progress in the investigation. A post from January 1 reads, this will be the year. And would like to welcome Nikki to the show tonight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Well, tonight joining us is Nikki Myers. Nikki, thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. I know you're in LaGrange. Is that close to Elyria? Yeah, it's a, it's about uh, 15 or 20 minutes from Elyria. Okay. Well, listen, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm married and I have uh, three three children and four stepchildren and almost nine grandchildren. That's more than the Brady Bunch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they must really keep you busy. Yes, they do. <laughs> you know, I would really love to hear more about Angie and what she was like. Why don't you, you knew her as well as anybody. Why don't you fill us in? Angie was just the sweetest, uh, fun-lovingest, easygoingest, just young teenage girl. She was really funny. She had a good personality. She always liked to try to make people laugh. And uh, she always were, was cracking jokes and 
Um, she loved to play sports. She was pretty athletic. She played uh, basketball, and she played, uh, and she was cheerleader. Now, and, um, you saw, the last time you saw her was the day before she disappeared, right? Yes. Why don't you tell us about that day? The day before she disappeared, I had pretty much spent the whole summer over there with her, um, but it was time for me to go home because school was going to be starting pretty soon. Sam had, he was working at Safeway driving school at the time as a mechanic, and he was terminated, and he had tools of theirs, and he was told if the tools weren't returned that they were going to call the authorities. So me, Nancy, and Angie went to go take the tools back. And in the meantime, my parents had come over to the apartment to look, you know, to pick me up, and uh, he had told them that he didn't know where I was at. So we dropped the tools off. My parents had one ahead and left. Then Angie's mom took me home. Sam had said, told us when we came back to the apartment that um, he didn't know. He told my parents he didn't know where I was at. And Angie got upset and said, why, why would you lie to him about that? And he didn't really answer why he, why he said that to them which we didn't really know. I don't know if it was because he was embarrassed or he just, I don't know. We just don't, didn't know. But she was upset about it. So Nancy and Angie drove me back home. And when I got there, my parents weren't there yet. So she was upset and I was upset because um, there was, Angie's mom couldn't talk to them to explain to them that, you know, Sam had lied about it. Sure, and your parents are probably nervous and upset not knowing where you're at. Right, exactly. So she had to drop me off and just uh, go ahead and leave. And like I said, that was, that was uh, the last time that I seen her was the day before when they had dropped me off at my house. Now, I know when Angie went missing, her mom asked you to help look through her belongings in her room. Yes. And describe the moment when you realized that duffel bag was gone. Was it just an immediate reaction with you? Well, it it was when I was going through the closet because, like I said, I had been over there the whole summer. So I knew we wore a lot of each other's clothes. So I knew, you know, what was there. It was like almost like my own closet. So when I went through her drawers and her laundry hamper and all that stuff, looking to see if I noticed anything missing, because if she would have ran away, she would have packed something or taken shoes with her. And none of her shoes were gone. And when I opened up the closet and I looked up in the closet, I just like stood there for a second because I remember she had a, a double door by a full closet. I was just in two days before and on the top of the, sh- on the, top of the closet, there was actually a shelf up there above where the the clothes hung. And um, I remember looking up at that two days ago beforehand when I was getting my own stuff together, thinking that I thought it was weird that um, the way the duffel bag was laid out on the shelf. Instead of being folded, it was just kind of laying straight flat out. So to me, I guess in my mind it stuck out because I had thought to myself, Hmm, that's kind of odd. I think I would have folded that instead of laying it flat. But there was nothing else up there besides that, laying out flat. And when I looked up there and I seen that it was gone, 
And I, by then I had went through her clothes. So I knew none of her clothes were gone. None of her hair stuff, none of her makeup was gone. And when I seen that was gone, then that's like, I just felt instantly like sick to my stomach. I mean, did you, I knew, she, I, I knew she didn't leave that apartment. I can't even imagine the frustration that you must have been going through for all of these years, really confident in your mind who and what had happened and no justice coming from that. I mean, what was that like? What did you do over the last 30 years? I mean, did you talk about it a lot? Did you communicate with the police a lot? yeah, I did. I did. Um, I did everything I could do. I promised her that I would see that, see it through. And like, I knew that he killed her and I told her like, I'm not, you know, to the, my last day, I'm going to make sure like he's caught, like, I'm not going to give up or forget about her. And I did all kinds of things. I had a, we had a candlelight visual for her. I always try to call and keep her name out in the paper and try to get any publicity that I could on her case. I tracked him. I tracked that man to the ends of the earth. I knew where he lived through the internet. I know who he was married to, his divorces. And a big part of the reason why I did that is because they had said that they need more evidence. They need, they need, they need more something else. So I did that looking up his criminal records and cities and towns he had lived in, trying to find, just find something to be able to connect him with that would fall back and maybe make them revisit her case. Did any of your research or, you know, following of him lead you to think, even for one split second, that he had become a serial killer? I I was surprised that he had become a serial killer. And I guess part of the reason why that is, is because I always told myself that maybe it was an accident that they had gotten a fight over what had happened about him lying to my parents. And he knocked her down the stairs or something to that effect. And it was an accident because I never in my mind wanted to think to the fact that he, he could have done anything to, actually hurt her you know what I mean physically like I didn't want to think of the fact of her suffering or anything like that so I had always that had helped me deal with it is just by thinking that well maybe it was an accident maybe he didn't mean to do it you know what I mean absolutely that's kind of what's gotten me through because just the fact of knowing now that he's an actual serial killer and everything else it's it's just uh it's a lot uh, and just for our listeners, I just want to reiterate, he has not been convicted of any of those murders, but he has been connected to three murders by his DNA. So when we are talking about like his guilt is presumed, he's not been found guilty, but obviously the evidence is pretty, pretty amazing. Correct. Will you be satisfied if they can never get enough evidence to charge him with Angie's death. I mean, obviously, it it sounds like the most likely scenario is that he will be tried in the cases of those truck stop murders. He's, He's mentally unstable, and he's been found mentally incompetent to stand trial right now. So who knows? He may never even be 
brought to trial for those, he may just spend the rest of his life in an asylum. But would you be satisfied knowing that he's been taken off the street or do you really need that, that closure? I I will be happy that he can't, he can't hurt anybody else. But for me, I'll never have closure. There's nothing that's ever going to bring her back. Um, but like I said, I want, I want to see him tried and convicted of her murder. You know, that's the promise that I made to her that I was going to see it through to the end. And that's, that's going to be my, my sort of closure is just knowing that, you know, I seen it through to the end. So, and the thing about Sam and his mental illness I'm not saying that he's not schizophrenic or he obviously you don't kill women and hide their bodies and get away with it for almost 30 years and not have a a mental problem. But there's a difference between being a psychopath and being mentally ill. And my history knowing Sam is he has always lied to get us off out of trouble. That's why his record isn't is is limited say he got a traffic stop or he was always really good out of talking himself out of stuff he is a very good liar and when i seen sam and i looked him in the eyes he knew who i was and he put his eyes at the ground he knows you know he he's not crazy he's not crazy he knows what he did and he knows that he doesn't have anything else other than to say that he's crazy now Right. He wouldn't be the first person to fool authorities or the courts or at least succeed in getting a legal definition, you know, to work in his favor. That's for sure. Right. The reason he was caught was because the BCI was investigating these truck stop murders that went back into the 80s. And it seems like, and I think you would agree, he could not have been the murder of all those truck stop uh, slayings because he would have been a teenager for some of them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's true. I mean, there were some that was, were done, I think, 87, 89. Uh, in that era, he could have done it. He would have been 17 or 18 years old. I'm not saying that, but he didn't have a CDL then. He yeah. So the guy who then. was, yeah, the guy who was calling himself Doctor No on the CB, that couldn't have been him. I I would I would say no. Okay. My personal opinion, just given his age, I think one of the victims he has actually been charged with, you know, she kind of fit on their uh, on their chart of the women and the the routes and the truck stops. So when they got that hit. You know what I mean? I just feel like it's it wasn't just one serial killer. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's the point. The scary yeah. thing is, okay, there wasn't one guy. Apparently there were two serial killers, at least, stalking sex workers along Ohio's right. interstates. And while catching Sam may prove that they have caught one of them, it sounds like Dr. No may be still out there, you know, or, or, I mean, he may not be alive anymore, but certainly they haven't figured out who he is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of it was, you know, in the vicinity, a lot of them, 
where he was and all that type of stuff. But Sam's dad is was also a truck driver too. Oh no! Wait yes. a minute. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And I don't know the whole dynamics of any of that, but I'm sure if they've rained DNA or and whatnot, you know what I mean, they would have linked something. Well, that's if, true. That's true. Especially if, that if they had the DNA of the older and the older right. cases. Right, if the, if they do. So, but yeah, his dad was a truck driver as well. Okay. We appreciate you giving us the opportunity to keep our story out there. Now, um, you have started a Facebook page. Yes. Um, how will people find that? Can they just Google, you know, Angela Hicks Facebook and, and yep, it'll lead them they, to, to? Exactly. You? If they Google okay. Angela Hicks Facebook, it'll, it'll lead, lead them to the link and they can just go ahead and click on it and all that stuff. Oh, what is the value of having a Facebook page like that? Well, the thing that happened with the Facebook page is I had a investigator from the Amy Mahalovic case come out and speak to me a couple of years back about her case because they were trying to see if there were any links between, you know, these unsolved murders of these young girls and stuff like that. Right. And after he had left, I kind of backed off the, Looking up stuff, I felt a little defeated because Amy Bahalovic was from Bay Village. Her parents had money. Angie's mom, you know, she didn't. And I always felt like there was so much emphasis on that case and not hers. When he left, I kind of felt like, well, when is, you know, I've reached out to Unsolved Mysteries, like so many different places trying to get her story out. Then I kind of felt like they're not, no one's ever going to do anything like, you know. So I kind of felt defeated and I, you know, I expressed my feelings to the detective and then I want to say it was probably a month and a half before this whole story broke. I was sitting here with my husband and we were watching, they had a three hour series of the Amy Mahalovic case on IDTV and watching that. And I believe it's the second, the second series, they had Angie's case on there. And other girls as well. So I was like really happy and excited because I felt like he he did me a solid by doing that because he knew like I where I felt as far as like getting it her story back out there. Right. So for it to be publicized again, like and I had no idea it was even gonna be on there. It was totally out of the blue. So How I was like that. What a, so what a happy moment after, for you. So after that aired it kind of put it back into me, my drive, like, okay, well, this is out here again. So I'm going to, you know, do this. So I made her Facebook page and it wasn't even a month later that my mom called me from Florida telling me that they got him. So you started that. I didn't realize that you started the Facebook page even a month before you learned that Samuel yes. Lake. Wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. I'll have to go back and read those early posts. You must've been over the moon. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I once I've been to every one of his court hearings. I haven't missed one. Well, I am sure wherever Angie is, she is appreciating the love that you continue to have for her and the determination uh, you have had to make sure she's not forgotten. Her life on this earth might have only been fourteen years, but she certainly has made an impact, and you have played a big role in making sure that she did. Well, thank you. And I know she would have done the same for me, too. So, Well, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. 
Okay, well, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Cincinnati-raised Megan Wren said she likes her music to be both of this world and yet entirely capable of taking you far outside of it. So she draws on the likes of the earthy Stevie Nicks and the no-boundaries Freddie Mercury for her inspiration. She picked up the guitar at the age of 11 and went on to study music production at Ohio University. When she turned 21, she had a lifetime of performing under her belt when she released her first EP in 2018, then took off on an eight-month live music tour through Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky. Megan is based in Athens now and has been putting out fresh music and performing somewhere just about every month. To keep up with her schedule, follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at her website, MeganRenMusic.com. Tonight, we're playing her song, First to Shoot. Have a listen, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. saying we got problems Nobody's gonna do anything about them Can you give me your time Can you lend me in here Can you give me the space to say things you don't wanna
be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loops serial killers of color a true crime podcast Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 